Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. September 1980. In Washington Township, New Jersey, Sammy the Bull Gravano and Trenton mobster Johnny Keys Simone walked through Skyview Country Club discussing business. Though the two were from rival families, they had become fast friends over the past few weeks. So when Sammy rested his hand on Simone's shoulder as they walked, he thought nothing of it. However, Simone did find it strange when they got to the parking lot and saw that a van was idling near them. Right on cue, two men burst from the van and snatched Simone. As they tied him and chucked him into the van, Sammy hopped in, and the van drove off. The whole thing had been a ruse. Months earlier, Angelo Bruno, the long-standing boss of the Philadelphia mob, had been murdered, and Simone had been one of the men to do it. The hit was unsanctioned, and the Gambino family wanted justice. Sammy was given the contract. Sammy and his men drove nearly 90 miles north to Staten Island. In that time, Simone knew he was going to die. He asked Sammy just one thing, if he could be killed with his shoes off. Out of respect, Sammy agreed. When they got to the spot, Simone stepped out of the car proudly, telling Sammy that he wanted to walk out and die like a man. When Simone was a few feet away, a pistol was leveled at his head and fired. Simone's honor in death always stuck with Sammy. He had made a mistake and took his punishment like a man. Sammy would come to realize the other men he was surrounded with were nothing like Simone. They had no honor. And when the epiphany came... Sammy was left with a life-altering decision. Take the fall for them, or fight back like a man. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our second episode on Sammy the Bull Gravano. Last week, we followed Sammy from his childhood in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, through his first mob hit and becoming a made man. This week, We'll explore how Sammy increasingly felt betrayed by his family and how, after years of doing their dirty work, he was forced to break his oath of silence. We'll dive into Sammy's road to betrayal after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In 1976, Sammy the Bull Gravano was the epitome of the Bensonhurst gangster. A newly minted made man, he was respected in the underworld as both a killer and an earner. For what seemed like the first time in his life, Sammy was enjoying a period of stability. Life was good. Sammy was a loyal soldier. He firmly believed that the Cosa Nostra would treat him well if he followed the rules. More importantly, if you followed the rules, it meant making a nice buck or two. By 1977, 32-year-old Sammy was working for Frank De Chico, a rising soldier in the Gambino family who was in his mid-40s. In De Chico, Sammy found an older brother. He taught him that there were much larger rackets than the armed robberies and nightclub management that was Sammy's previous bread and butter. De Chico was active in construction and labor racketeering. More importantly to Sammy, De Chico was a politically powerful ally to have in the confusing post-Carlo Gambino era of the crime family. Just before Sammy became a made man, the long-standing boss, Carlo Gambino, named his successor. Before the decision was made, many assumed that his underboss, Neil Della Croce, would take command of the family. But as fate would have it, Della Croce was in prison for tax evasion. So, the acting underboss, Paul Castellano, was chosen. When De La Croce was released the next year, he never challenged Castellano. As a way to help keep the peace and avoid a civil war, Castellano proposed that they divide and conquer. Castellano would take the respectable business, like gambling and construction, and De La Croce would retain control of the more unsavory rackets, hijacking, loan sharking, and simple extortion. Since De Chico was in construction, Sammy naturally fell more in line with Castellano's side of the family. And since Castellano was now the boss, De Chico wanted to make sure that his new protege, Sammy, was set up to succeed. Sammy took to the construction business naturally, combining his professional experience and commitment to consistency with dirty tricks and violence when necessary. He quickly became one of Castellano's most trusted operatives. But with the highs of being a made man came the unfortunate lows. Sammy took an oath, and when push came to shove, the Gambinos superseded everything, even his actual family. 
The troubles began when Sammy started hearing stories about his brother-in-law, Nicky Shibeta. Nicky was a cocaine addict and liked to pick fights when he was high. And one night, around 1977, Nicky attacked the wrong man, the son of another Gambino associate. To add insult to injury, after losing the fight, Nicky tried to press charges with the police. Sammy miraculously managed to talk him out of it. But a month later, Nicky was accused of insulting Frank DeChico's cousin. When Paul Castellano found out, he had had enough. He wanted Nicky dead. Castellano ordered DeChico to take Sammy's small, recently formed crew and kill Nicky. And most importantly, to not tell Sammy about it. But two of the crew members pushed back. They didn't feel right doing this kind of thing without telling Sammy. De Chico passed the message on to Castellano, and surprisingly, the boss agreed. He let them tell Sammy, with one condition. If Sammy refused to go along with the hit, he was to be killed right then and there. When Sammy heard the ultimatum, he was enraged. He even went so far as to announce that he would kill Castellano himself. But when it came down to it, he remembered that he had taken an oath. His family was more important than his actual blood family. So Sammy gave the men his blessing, and at some point in 1978, Nicky Shibeta disappeared. His severed arm would eventually be discovered, the only proof Sammy needed to know that his brother-in-law was hacked to pieces. Even after this, Sammy continued to prove himself loyal to the family. Not only was he earning through the construction business, but he'd also invested in a Brooklyn nightclub called the Plaza Suite. On an average week, he was reportedly pulling in $4,000 just from the club. After years of struggling, Sammy had made it, and he wanted to have something to show for it. He bought a 30-acre piece of land in Cream Ridge, New Jersey, and converted it into a horse farm. It even had a regulation racetrack. But in order to hold on to the success, he needed to do the family's dirty work. For Sammy, murder was just a part of his oath to the family. He had pledged that he would kill for his boss, no questions. And he did. But by the beginning of the 1980s, his boss, Paul Castellano, was starting to rub some people the wrong way. Castellano was a hypocrite. He relied heavily on the violent arm of his family, but he regularly dismissed and alienated his most effective killers. He even remarked in a meeting that cops were tougher than his own enforcers. For many, including Sammy, that was a slap in the face to the work they did to fatten Castellano's pockets. But what could they do? He was in charge. Whacking a boss required permission from the rest of the mafia leadership. And until Castellano made some more serious enemies, Getting that would be difficult. The tensions finally started to come to a head in 1983. In August, a Gambino soldier, Angelo Ruggiero, was charged by the FBI with heroin distribution. During the investigation, the Gambinos learned for the first time that Ruggiero's house had been wiretapped. The gang waited for the other shoe to drop, but for two years, things were quiet. The FBI didn't do any serious damage to the rackets. Everyone, including Sammy, 
hoped that the charges would go no further than Ruggiero. They were not that lucky. In 1985, U.S. attorney Rudy Giuliani issued an indictment under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. The indictment was against the entire mafia. Each of the five families' bosses were named, including Paul Castellano. In the indictment, Castellano was described as the de facto head of the entire Mafia commission, and his bail was set at $4 million. Suddenly, Paul Castellano and the press-savvy John Gotti, who had been climbing the family's ranks, were dominating headlines across the country. Here was the real-life face of the mob. For Sammy and the other foot soldiers, the playbook now was simple. Keep your head down and keep earning. But it was hard to go through the motions when the entire Gambino leadership structure was thrown off balance. During this impasse, John Gotti sensed an opportunity to take power for himself. For years, Gotti had hated Castellano. With the chaos of 1985, he finally had his chance to strike. It was obvious to everyone, including Castellano, that Gotti was planning on making moves. In response, he formulated a plan to break up Gotti's crew. Sammy Gravano was trapped in the middle. He knew that very soon, Gotti would make a power grab. And when he did, which side would he choose? Which side would keep him alive? Up until now, Sammy only knew Gotti from a distance, but there was mutual respect between them. When Sammy's father died in the late 1970s, Gotti attended the funeral with a huge group of men. But rarely did they or their crews intermingle otherwise. If push came to shove and Gotti asked for Sammy's help, would Sammy have it in him to follow him? Sammy was forced to answer the question in September 1985. He was approached by Gotti's men with a proposition. The time had come, they said. Was Sammy with them? Coming up, Sammy comes to a decision. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. By 1985, 40-year-old Sammy Gravano had risen through the ranks of the Gambino crime family, leading one of the more successful crews. But tensions among the family had created a division, and it left Sammy stuck in the middle. In September, Gotti finally presented Sammy with one of the most difficult choices in a gangster's life. Would he side with Gotti and help kill Paul Castellano? 
Sammy Gravano had spent his entire adult life proving his loyalty to the family. To kill Castellano would break the vow he took when he was a made man. But to not act could leave him as a casualty in the bloody gang war. So Sammy went to his closest friend and mentor, Frankie DeChico. Sammy and Frankie were two of the most influential Gambino associates in Bensonhurst, and Sammy was leaning towards following his friend's lead. Frankie told Sammy something that set his mind at ease. Neither of them believed that Gotti was the ideal boss. But if the three of them could knock off Castellano, they'd let Gotti rule for a year and then reassess. If he was no good at it, Sammy and Frankie could just kill Gotti. Frankie would become boss and Sammy would be underboss. Sammy liked that idea and it made the prospect of breaking his oath to Castellano go down a little easier. A few days later, Sammy passed the message on to Gotti. He was sold, assuming that they could build up enough support amongst the older generation for their hostile takeover. The conspirators reached out to others in the family and the broader Cosa Nostra. With a reputation for blind greed, Castellano had many enemies and few friends. Domino after Domino fell. Soon enough, Sammy became convinced that they had the support to pull off the hit. The only question was when. The answer came on December 2nd, 1985, when Gotti's mentor, Neil De La Croce, died of cancer. Castellano didn't attend either De La Croce's funeral or wake. When asked why, he explained that it would be bad publicity during his trial. Just like that, the plotters were handed the perfect justification for their coup. Gotti's self-serving plot even took on a heroic bent. He would rise to power by avenging the disrespect to his mentor. But there was still the matter of how to kill perhaps the most powerful gangster in the country. After weeks of debate, the opportunity finally presented itself. Castellano organized a meeting of his top capos at a midtown Manhattan steakhouse called Sparks. Gotti, Sammy, and Frankie saw it as the perfect opportunity. The conspirators came up with a straightforward plan. Midtown would be packed with thousands of people when they arrived for this 5 p.m. dinner. If they killed Castellano as he was coming in, they could easily escape into the ensuing chaos. They put together a team of 11 men for the hit. Four shooters, pulled from Gotti's crew, would stand by the restaurant door and open fire when Castellano approached. The other seven would block off various escape routes. Sammy and Gotti would be waiting in a car a block down the street. Always with a flair for style, Gotti dressed the shooters in long white overcoats and black Russian hats. This way, witnesses would only remember the clothes, not the men. On December 16, 1985, the plan went into action. Gotti and Sammy parked on the corner of 3rd and 46th Street and waited for Castellano to arrive. After what felt like an eternity, Sammy spotted Castellano's Lincoln Town car. To his horror, it was pulling up at the stoplight right beside them. The adrenaline kicked in. Sammy turned to Gotti and told him that if Castellano spotted them from the car window, he would take the shot right then and there. 
Otherwise, Castellano might get suspicious and the whole plan would be in danger. But Gotti told Sammy to wait and follow the plan. The light turned green and Castellano's car lurched forward. Within seconds, Castellano got out of the car. The shooters stepped forward and removed their guns from their gray coats. They fired as one, putting at least a dozen shots into Castellano and his right-hand man. Paul Castellano bled to death in the middle of midtown Manhattan. When the shooters fled, Sammy and Gotti drove away. By the time they got to Brooklyn, word was out. Paul Castellano was dead, and John Gotti was the new Don in town. The official word, as Gotti communicated it to the other families, was that nobody knew who had killed Paul Castellano. Of course, with the very public drama unfolding from Castellano's trial, everyone in America could take a pretty good guess at who it was. Newspapers all over the country were announcing above the fold that Gotti had made a power play. Within a couple of weeks, the new structure of the family was formed. Gotti was boss. Frank De Chico was underboss, and Joe Gallo would stay on as consigliere. Meanwhile, Sammy was elevated to capo. From the beginning, Sammy had his reservations about Gotti, but he still had his agreement with Frankie De Chico that if Gotti had to go, they would take control. Unfortunately, in the underworld, things don't always go as planned. On Sunday, April 13th, 1986, Sammy and Frankie visited the Veterans and Friends Club in Brooklyn. The club was the headquarters for the Gambino's lucrative trash collection business. Every Sunday, they would meet with Gotti before he made his other rounds. But today, at the last second, Gotti had to cancel. While at the club, a soldier of the Lucchese family asked Frankie if he could recommend him a lawyer. Frankie knew one, and offered to give him the lawyer's card, but he left it in his car. Frankie and the Lucchese soldier went outside to grab it. Sammy heard the explosion from inside the club. When he ran out, he saw what was left of Frankie De Chico smoldering on the street. Sammy tried to pull his friend from the wreckage, but his charred body fell apart at his touch. Years later, Sammy discovered that the car bombing had been planned by the Genovese boss, Vincent the Chin Giganti, with help from the Lucchese family. As it turned out, Giganti wasn't too thrilled with the unsanctioned hit against his friend, Paul Castellano. The bomb had been intended for Frankie and John Gotti, whom they mistakenly thought would be in the car as well. Chin was hoping to create a power vacuum in the Gambino family that would allow the Genoveses to take control. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Gotti was still very much alive. In the aftermath, Sammy inherited his friend's crew and became the undisputed head of the Bensonhurst Gambinos. And to keep the family united, Gotti named Sammy as the new underboss. But in an unusual move, he named one of his own loyal crew members, Angelo Ruggiero, as co-underboss. Gotti wanted to make sure that the leadership was stacked with his cronies to avoid any nefarious plots. Sammy had achieved the mafioso dream, 
rising from a common foot soldier to underboss. But it was bittersweet. The path to that number two position came at the expense of his closest ally. Frankie was like an older brother to Sammy. Whenever he needed guidance, he knew Frankie would give him the right advice. With him gone, Sammy felt lost. Which made the next few years even more painful. It was obvious that the plan to eliminate Gotti if he proved to be a weak leader wasn't going to work without Frankie. And with each passing year, Sammy came to realize that John Gotti was Cosa Nostra in name only. He didn't care about the family nearly as much as he cared about himself. And as the walls started to close in, Sammy knew that in order to protect himself, he was going to have to break his oath of loyalty one last time. Coming up, Sammy Gravano's final betrayal. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. By late 1986, 41-year-old Sammy the Bull Gravano had risen to underboss of the Gambino crime family. But it was hard for him to savor the moment. The only reason he was given the rank was because his best friend, Frankie DeChico, was murdered. Worse yet, Sammy quickly realized that being the underboss to John Gotti wasn't going to be exactly the honor it should have been. Gotti was living up to all the fears Sammy and Frankie had had a year earlier. The only problem was Sammy now had to face Gotti alone. Paul Castellano, for all his faults, had treated the family like a diversified conglomerate, moving dirty money into legal industries. Gotti, on the other hand, used the family money as his own personal piggy bank. Instead of ruling in the shadows like most mobsters had historically done, Gotti relished the spotlight. He fashioned himself as the well-dressed, well-spoken mafia boss, the most powerful man in town. He walked around in designer suits, earning him the nickname the Dapper Don. On top of that, his gambling debts continued to grow. Rumors of unpaid five- and six-figure wages spread all over town. Bookies began to complain. They couldn't not take John Gotti's bet, but they also couldn't force him to pay up. But Sammy didn't ask questions about Gotti's personal life. He carried out his role as underboss with typical professionalism. With one hand, he grew the family's construction businesses. With the other, he cleaned house. After Castellano's death, Sammy would never again be involved in the hit of a top-level gangster. Instead, 
he was tasked with removing embarrassments within his own crew. Nikki Cowboy and Mike DeBat, two younger Gambino associates, both got taken out because their drug habits made them a risk. Sammy's role as underboss was more or less to put out all the fires that Gotti started. He was constantly in the limelight or under investigation, and it fell to Sammy to keep the ship afloat. Gotti's nickname may have been the Teflon Don for all of the charges that failed to stick, but everyone knew it was only a matter of time before the feds pinned him for good. Yet no one expected that a five-year-old case would mark the beginning of the leadership's undoing. In 1988, Sammy's co-underboss, Angelo Ruggiero, was once again on trial for the same 1983 heroin charge that had started Castellano's downfall. The previous attempt to lock him away had ended in a mistrial. But now, it seemed as if the feds were going to get him. During the case, Gotti got access to the FBI wiretaps from Ruggiero's house. And when Gotti listened to them, he was furious. Gotti appeared on the tapes many times, and while his connection to the heroin business was minimal, his involvement in other racketeering was obvious. This could be the smoking gun to bring them all down. One of the first things Gotti did in response was to demote Ruggiero and make Sammy the sole underboss. But a demotion wasn't enough. He wanted Ruggiero dead. In 1989, Gotti asked Sammy to whack Ruggiero. But Sammy couldn't bring himself to do it. In fact, in Sammy's eyes, Ruggiero was already being punished enough. By now, the heroin peddler was suffering from lung cancer. It wouldn't be long before he succumbed to a slow, painful death. Ultimately, Sammy won the argument and was able to change Gotti's mind on the hit. And before the end of 1989, Ruggiero would, in fact, be dead from his lung cancer. Gotti had wanted Ruggiero dead on principle. Everything was a question of image to him. That was why he held a huge parade every 4th of July or invited reporters to his club. What was important was controlling the narrative, appearing ruthless and untouchably powerful. But Sammy adhered more to the old school rules, the simple idea of keeping your head down and staying out of the limelight. It was frustrating to see Gotti constantly in the tabloids because it meant the heat was always going to be on them. Sammy knew that the other shoe was bound to drop eventually. A year later, it finally did. In the fall of 1990, Gotti heard that he was likely going to be arrested for Paul Castellano's murder. Ever since the tabloids had reported his involvement, the FBI had been determined to nail him for it. Gotti needed to come up with a contingency plan for how to run the family if the feds tried to indict the entire leadership. He ordered Sammy to go on the lam and run the gang from an undisclosed location. Sammy did as ordered, hiding first at his father-in-law's cabin and then down in Florida. But Sammy felt like he was too far from the action. So he devised a plan to construct a secret apartment in a Brooklyn warehouse and live there permanently. This plan didn't change at all when he learned that there was a warrant out for his arrest. Gotti was unsure about the idea. He asked Sammy to come and meet in person just to firm up the strategy. 
As the meeting place, Gotti chose his favorite Manhattan clubhouse, the Ravenite. On December 11, 1990, Gravano made his way to the Ravenite. Once he got inside, he saw Gotti and a Gambino consigliere, Frank Locasio, already waiting for him. After about 15 minutes, Sammy thought that he felt a breeze. He turned around and, to his shock and horror, saw federal agents flooding through the door. He turned back to Gotti, who looked unsurprised. Before the agents slapped their cuffs onto Gotti, he asked for a final cup of coffee. The agents allowed it. But for Sammy Gravano, all he got was the laundry list of RICO felonies he was up for. As the charges piled up, it became obvious that he was, in all likelihood, going to be getting life. From the moments the three men were sent to booking, Gotti became paranoid that Sammy was going to betray him. On their first day in jail, Sammy and Frank Locasio found themselves in the same holding cell for three hours. While the two did commiserate some, neither discussed the case in front of the other prisoners. Still, when Gotti found out, he flew into a rage. To him, it looked like they were conspiring to turn on him. Sammy was dumbfounded. He believed in the code of silence, and he tried to convince Gotti that everything was going to be all right. But Gotti's paranoia only got worse. Soon, Gotti tried to refuse Sammy access to his Gambino finance lawyer. Sammy had been in the game his whole adult life, and he had never heard of a gangster being forbidden to meet with his lawyer. It didn't make sense for anyone. Sammy tried to cooperate with Gotti, proving time and time again that he would never betray the family and break his oath. Then, he heard the Ravenite tapes. Much like the bugs in Angelo Ruggiero's home back in the early 1980s, Gotti's favorite bar, the Ravenite, had been tapped by the FBI. From November of 1989 to late January 1990, the FBI collected everything they needed. There was Gotti, admitting that he was the boss and openly discussing hits. On tape, Gotti suggested that it was Sammy who had incited him to violence, and that Sammy was the one who initiated many of the organization's recent hits. This was the whole case that the government had against Sammy. Every single piece of evidence connecting him to a crime came straight from John Gotti's mouth. And what a mouth it was. Gotti painted a picture of the Gambino operation that suggested he was a victim of Sammy's violent rages. It was immediately clear to Sammy that Gotti would defend himself by arguing that he was simply following Sammy's orders. To Sammy, this violated every sense of street justice. He was the toughest guy in Bensonhurst, one of the top players in New York City's underworld, and he was being two-timed by his own boss. This betrayal was the last straw for Sammy. He had already broken the code once by murdering Castellano. He saw no reason not to do it again. But from within his jail cell, Sammy knew there was only one way to kill Gotti, by breaking Omerta, the code of silence. On midnight of November 8, 1991, Sammy was taken from jail and sent to FBI training headquarters in Quantico. 
he was turning state's witness. At the time, he was the highest-ranking mafioso to ever do so. John Gotti's trial began on February 12, 1992. It was, as expected, a media circus. Newsweek made sure to report on Gotti's daily fashion choices. After several weeks, it was time for Sammy to take the stand. On March 2nd, Sammy entered the courtroom and saw a smirk on Gotti's face. But after three days of testimony, the smirk was gone. On the stand, Sammy coldly admitted to personally committing 19 murders, four with Gotti's involvement. His most devastating testimony came when he walked the jury through every step of Paul Castellano's murder. Every observer agreed that by the time Sammy was done testifying, Gotti didn't stand a chance. There was no way even the Teflon Don would beat this rap. They weren't wrong. The jury deliberated for 13 hours and found Gotti guilty on every count of conspiracy to murder and racketeering. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Sammy didn't go to trial for his own crimes until 1994. By then, he had become the key witness in several other mafia trials. Despite all the murders he admitted to, Sammy was only sentenced five years in prison. The judge praised him for his heroism in ratting on his friends. Sammy was out in less than a year. In exchange for his testimony, the government set him up in witness protection, working for a pool installation company in Arizona. But Sammy quickly became bored living the life of an everyman. It's hard to blame him. He went from high-ranking mafioso to media sensation to pool installation man in a few short years. To add some excitement, he did the very thing he'd hated Gotti for doing. He courted the media. Throughout the 1990s, Sammy gave up the witness protection life and granted several interviews about his time in the mafia. He even became the subject of a best-selling biography by Peter Mass called Underboss. But the attention wasn't enough to keep his nose clean. In 2000, Sammy, Debbie, and their two children were arrested as part of a 40-person ecstasy ring operating out of Arizona. The indictment claimed they were clearing $500,000 a week in sales. Sammy served 17 years in federal prison, pleading guilty to various drug trafficking charges. He was released on September 18, 2017, at age 72. When Sammy turned state's witness in 1991, he began a tidal wave of followers. Throughout the 1990s, as RICO cases were brought against formative members of the Mafia, more and more high-ranking members ratted. Sammy never expected that he would break his oath of silence. Then again, he never expected to break his oath and help orchestrate the murder of a boss either. But that was the life he chose. Betrayal has and always will be a part of the Mafia. No matter how honorable Sammy liked to think he was, even he broke the cardinal rules when his own survival was at stake. He may have been the first major player to do so by cooperating with the police, but he definitely would not be the last. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. We'll be back next week with another episode. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton.